Our text is Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, through all of chapter 6. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace, for the grace that came to us in the person of our Lord Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. Thank you for the grace of the gospel by which you made possible salvation, not through our works, but through the sacrificial gift of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the grace that you give us for daily living. And we thank you also for the way in which Paul and others protected that grace from those who would turn it into something else. Help us to defend this grace and to proclaim it. And as this chapter makes clear, help us to practice it. Help us to be people who are known by grace and that manifest the same grace that has been shown to us. Be with Tom as he proclaims your word. Bring it home to us, to our hearts and to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are wrapping up our study of Paul's powerful letter to the Galatians this morning. I plan to do a standalone message next time from a passage in the Gospel of Luke, and then our intention is to begin a study through 1 Peter, which I believe is exceedingly relevant to us 
in the current cultural context as it has been relevant to the church in every age. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul called all believers to walk by the Spirit just as we live by the Spirit. If you have been made spiritually alive through faith in Jesus Christ alone, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit within you that made you alive. According to Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed that message, God sealed you with His Holy Spirit. And that seal was the permanent down payment of all the rest of your inheritance in eternity. It was God the Holy Spirit who brought you from spiritual death into spiritual life. And it is by the Spirit that you continue to have spiritual life. He is at work in us to continually sanctify us, to conform us to Christ. And Paul teaches that because we live by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we must also walk by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means to actually think and act in dependence upon the Spirit and in His power rather than in ours or by ours. When we walk by the Spirit, Paul says, we stop doing the deeds of the flesh that devastate our relationship with God and our relationships with other people. And instead, the Spirit produces in us the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is against that backdrop the exhortation to walk by the Spirit just as we have been made alive by the Spirit, that Paul now presents his concluding exhortations to the Galatian saints and to us. Paul waits until this last chapter to point out that he wrote this book by his own hand rather than dictating it to an assistant as he typically did. He wants the Galatians and us to understand that what he's saying here is of critical importance. In these final important exhortations, Paul speaks four times about boasting. He sets before us a stark contrast between that which is not worthy of our boasting and that which is. Now before we examine that contrast, we need to back up one step to get to the real heart of the matter because our boasting is really just a symptom of what we value, what we find to be boastworthy, if you will. In this passage, Paul's going to identify several things that are not boastworthy, and one thing, just one, that is. And it is the worthiness, the supreme value of that one thing that tells us exactly what we must do so that our lives will be of value to God, to other people, and to, to us by God's grace. Paul speaks in this passage about four miscalculations to which we are prone. Four things that we love to boast about that are actually completely worthless. 
And he points out these four misguided value judgments in order to turn our eyes fully back to the one and only worthy object of our boasting. If you look at the outline up there, we'll, we'll see there are four things Paul's going to address that are not boastworthy. First, we and our works. Second, the works that we compel others to do. Then, our investment in temporary things. And finally, our comfort. Specifically, freedom from persecution. And then he brings our attention at the end to that which is indeed truly boastworthy. And it's just one thing. He begins in the last verse of chapter 5 by declaring that every time we boast in ourselves and our own accomplishments, we are assigning value to something that is utterly valueless. And when we do that, we do all kinds of damage (laughs) because of that gross miscalculation. The notion that there is anything commendable in us apart from Christ in us leads to all kinds of destructive behavior. An exalted view of self wreaks havoc on our relationships with other people. And that's where Paul goes in chapter 5, verse 26. He says, when we boast in ourselves, we challenge one another and we envy one another. And that's a very interesting combination, challenge and envy. Both of these sins arise because we are comparing ourselves to other people. First, we challenge one another. We readily find fault in our brother or in our sister in Christ. And when we do, we do so with an agenda. (laughs) And we may not even realize that we have this agenda But the issue is we hunt for fault in other people in order to make ourselves appear to be more valuable than we actually are. See, if I'm trying to find cause to boast in myself, it helps my case a lot if I can convince myself that other people don't measure up to my worthiness, that somehow I've got them beat. If I can diminish the other guy's worth, it makes it a lot easier for me to come out looking good. And of course, the flip side of this is that if I perceive the other guy to be more worthy of boasting than I am, I become envious. I feel threatened. I want to be more like he is. But one of the many beautiful things about being a child of God is that we get to see ourselves as God sees us. As we learn what is true about God, we discover the real truth about us and about all other people. That's exactly what happened to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, right? He beheld a glorious vision of Yahweh sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, the train of His robe filling the temple. He saw the seraphim, these beautiful angels around the throne, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then having gotten a view of God that few men have ever beheld, Isaiah knew what was true of himself and what was true 
of his people. He cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then listen to the next statement. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah rightly saw God, he immediately realized that there was nothing worthy in himself and that there was nothing worthy in his fellow Israelites. It became crystal clear to him that all the worthiness, all the value, belongs to God. When we get this right, we see many, many things in our lives through a very radically different lens. And when we don't get this right, we see all of those same things wrongly, and we mess up all kinds of things. One of the most damaging outworkings of an exalted view of self is that we horribly mishandle the task of correction. And that's where Paul goes in chapter 6, verse 1. You may be right about your brother's need to turn away from some sin in his life and to turn fully back to Jesus Christ in submission, devotion, and faith. But if you consider yourself and your own works to be worthy of boasting, you will go about that task of correcting your brother in a way that completely violates your assignment from God. You will tear down instead of building up every time. Have you ever found yourself saying to another believer, how could you do such a thing? What you really mean and what you are actually conveying by your words is, I could never do such a thing. I could never sin the way you're sinning, so how could you? You're using the sacred stewardship of correction of a brother as an opportunity to feed your own ego at the expense of another child of God. There are many passages that command us not to approach correction in that way. And the reason behind all of those passages is right here in these first few verses of Galatians 6. In verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, if any man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Every single time that you set out to correct a brother or sister in Christ of a sin or to point out a lost sinner's desperate need to flee to Christ for forgiveness and redemption, you must do so with a spirit of deep humility before God knowing that the only good in you is Christ in you. Until you have come before God in prayer, humbly acknowledging your own sinfulness, confessing that there is nothing about you that qualifies you to convict anyone of anything, a prayer in which you fall upon God alone to produce change in that other person for His glory and for that person's good, not for your good, Until you have prayed that prayer, keep your words of correction to yourself. And 
I'm talking to me every bit as much as I'm talking to you. I have gotten this wrong so many times in my Christian life. At times, you and I might even consider praying that prayer in the hearing of the person that we are about to correct. It can be very clarifying. In verse 3, Paul says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I have good news for you. You are nothing apart from Jesus Christ. You are a miserable worm just like me. You are a rebel against the God who created you. You have failed at your entire purpose for existing, which is to be a worthy image bearer of a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God. If anyone thinks he is something when the truth is that he is nothing, he is deluded. He is enslaved by a sense of his own worth that is utterly false. And it is a bitter, harsh slavery. There is nothing as futile and as frustrating as spending your life trying to prove something to be true about yourself that in reality is patently false. And it is astounding how many Christians invest their lives in that futile attempt. The only freedom from slavery to self-exaltation is discovering that which is true about God. And that makes the truth about you and me and all the rest of us imminently clear. If you have lousy self-esteem, you're a lot closer to the truth than the guy who thinks he's all that. But if the reason that you're plagued with that lousy self-esteem is because you're comparing yourself with other people, you're still playing the same futile game as the guy who thinks he hung the moon. As my dear brother Dave Cleland said to me just a couple of days ago, when we compare ourselves to one another, it's like a bunch of worms arguing about who's the tallest. It doesn't matter who's the tallest worm. Stop comparing yourself with all the other failed image bearers of God and look to Jesus Christ as the only successful image bearer of God. The one who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. The only one who is worthy of comparison. The only one. That will clear things up very nicely you will quickly realize that you've made a grievous miscalculation. Not only are you a louse, you're a hopeless louse surrounded by other hopeless louses unless God changes you. Unless He makes you like His Son, something you could never even begin to do for yourself. And then, then, Lord willing, you will actually start to appreciate the gravity of His promise to do just that for every man, woman, and child that He brings to life in Jesus Christ. To give us Christ's own righteousness. The only good, the only worthiness that dwells in this corrupt dying body or in any of the other corrupt dying bodies in this room is Christ in me and Christ in you. That's it. He is our hope of glory. 
He is our only good and He is the only good that will ever matter. The sooner you own that, the sooner you will begin to live the life that is liberated from pride and envy and self-pity and depression. And the sooner you will become powerfully useful to God, not by your power, by the power of Christ in you. You'll start loving and serving other people from a place of great clarity and joy and strength instead of being driven by a powerless, impotent delusion about yourself. This is an all or nothing thing. It's not some of us and some of Him. It's none of us and all of Him. Verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. When God cures us of boasting in ourselves and we start boasting in Christ alone, we are set free from self and we are freed up to serve others. We are freed up to move from boasting to bearing. From boasting in ourselves to bearing one another's burdens. We recognize that our place in God's scheme of things is to be vessels of His grace toward other people because we who deserved condemnation, have been made objects of His grace forever in Christ. We bear one another's burdens joyfully. Instead of longing to be loved and to be served, we realize that God already has that covered. (laughs) That Christ already proved His overflowing love toward us that He laid down His life to bear our greatest burden and to do away with it. The burden of our sin. See, the cross clarifies everything. When we get this value proposition right, we find no cause, no cause to boast in our acts of love and service. All of our boasting is in His love and His service at the cross. We are freed up to care for the needs of others as instruments of God's grace. Without reservation. And, by the way, without any fear of ever being used up. Because the love that we are pouring out toward others is the love that God has poured out upon us to overflowing and it never stops coming. He is an overflowing well. When we get to witness a miraculous change in someone else, someone that we have loved and served, we boast not in ourselves, but in Christ. And that's where Paul goes next. In verses 4 and 5, he says, But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Paul picks up here on the word burden from verse 2, but he throws in a little twist. (laughs) He uses a synonym in verse 5 that also means load or burden. And it sounds at first like he's contradicting verse (laughs) 2. Verse 2, he says, we bear one another's burdens. In verse 5, he says, each one will bear his own burden, his own load. So what's going on here? Well, the apparent, the apparent contradiction is intentional. It's to get our attention. See, the Judaizers were boasting in the fact 
that they were able to get some Gentile Christians to be circumcised and to keep certain other aspects of the law of Moses. They thought that they were making brownie points with both men and God by getting Gentiles to do these things. Instead of humbling themselves and bearing the burdens of the Gentile believers, the Judaizers were putting a burden on the Gentiles. And it was the burden of law-keeping. Why were they doing that? They were doing it for themselves. They were trying to earn credit for compelling other people to do righteous-looking things. In verse 13, Paul says, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so they can boast in your flesh. It's bad enough when we take credit for good things that God does through us. But it must grieve God deeply when we boast about getting people to do things that look righteous, but that in the eyes of God are entirely without value. In Matthew 23, Jesus harshly rebuked the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, 4, he says, They tie up heavy loads and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. The Judaizers of Paul's and Peter's day were doing the same thing. They were boasting in the external law-keeping that they had managed to produce in some of these fledgling believers in the churches of Galatia, while they themselves completely missed the point of the law of Moses, which was to drive them to Christ. In Acts 15, Peter stood up at a meeting of the leaders in the mother church in Jerusalem, and he told those leaders that God had directly revealed to him, to Peter, his intention to save Gentiles as well as Jews. And then he said to the Judaizers in that crowd in verse 10, Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. See, we are not saved by burdensome law-keeping, and we are certainly not commended by God for imposing burdensome law-keeping on other people. We and they are saved only by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's point here in Galatians 6, verses 4 and 5, is that if we insist on seeking to be justified by works, if we put the works of men into the equation at all, it will be our own works by which we will be judged, not somebody else's. And that's not the solution. That's the problem. Romans 4 made it crystal clear that the one who takes pride in his own good works has absolutely nothing to boast about before God. It is not our works that make us righteous in the eyes of God. It is our works that condemn us. The one and only thing that makes us righteous before God is His grace received by faith in Jesus Christ. God did not save us so that we would pile impossible burdens on one another. He saved us so that we would bear one another's 
burdens, knowing that Christ has graciously borne the greatest burden of all in our place. We've talked a lot throughout this series about how we today perpetuate the error of the Judaizers, so I'm not going to go into a list of examples again here. But it is helpful for us to think about the ways that we mess things up when we put our boast in men. And it is far more helpful when we simply keep our eyes on the one boastworthy thing. And we'll see what that is in just a moment. First, there are a couple of other things Paul says are unworthy of our boasting. The third is our investment in temporary things, verses 6 through 10. These verses are primarily talking about what we do with our money. But the same principle applies to every provision and every blessing that God puts into our hands in this life. Paul is talking here about what we do with the things God gives to us. He's talking about sowing and reaping. Or to move from farm terminology to suburban Dallas terminology, he's talking about investing and getting a return on investment. Either we invest in fleshly, worldly, temporary things that are all going to perish, or we invest in the things of the Spirit, eternal, imperishable things. This is, of course, a very common theme in both Testaments, and it is a huge theme in the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows this, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. When Paul speaks here in verse 8 about how a person comes to reap eternal life, I do not believe at all that he's talking about how we become regenerate children of God. If that were what he was talking about, then the way to have eternal life in this passage would be by sharing all good things with him who teaches. That would be very advantageous for the guy who teaches. And by doing good to all men, especially to the household of the faith. Again, it's easy to see why some preachers like to interpret the passage that way. But if that were the case, Paul would be presenting an altogether different gospel here than he preaches everywhere else. His gospel, the only gospel, is not a gospel of works-based righteousness. It is the gospel of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So if Paul's not talking here about how we get saved, what's his point? If we boast in our riches, if we place value on money and material possessions, if we hold tightly to earthly wealth, we will reap corruption right here. And we will be working to corrupt ends that will work against the kingdom of God. We will be investing in stuff that cannot and will not abide into eternity. Stuff that will burn away to nothing when God judges 
this corrupt, cursed world. It will be as if we bought an expensive, ornate china cabinet that was on a conveyor belt on its way into an incinerator. Our return on investment is nothing but ash. If, on the other hand, we hold very loosely to worldly possessions, if we are quick to invest them in building up God's household and advancing Christ's kingdom, we will be storing up precious treasure in the new heavens and the new earth that will endure for eternity. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. Paul's point here about reaping eternal life is very much the same as his point in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That passage has a lot of similarities to this one. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul sternly warns Timothy about the terrible snare of holding tightly to earthly, worldly possessions. Right after saying that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Paul says in verses 11 and 12, Talking to Timothy, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. That list should sound a little familiar if you looked at Galatians 5. And then he says, listen to this, fight the good fight, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Then just a few verses later, he again uses this phrase, take hold of, and he's again talking about taking hold of life. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It is by holding very loosely, very loosely to the things of this earth, by being eager to invest them in ways that build up Christ's body now and that advance Christ's kingdom on this earth, that we store up treasure for eternity. And that we even now take hold of that which is life indeed. Our time here is very short. It's very short. If you're young, you may think it's long. Let me tell you, it's short. (laughs) So then, while we have opportunity, Paul says in verse 10, let us do good to all men. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And it's significant to bear in mind that the topic in these verses is primarily what we do with our money. Our first priority is to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But with that in mind, we are also to be vigilant to see the needs of the lost people that God sets before us. We are to be quick to let go of every resource that God puts into our hands in order to advance the kingdom that will endure. Because the reason that God gave us those things in the first place was so He could use them not so we could hoard them. We and our works are not worthy of boasting. The things we get other people to do are not worthy of boasting. Our investment in temporary 
passing things is not worthy of, of, of our boasting. And finally, our comfort is not worthy of our boasting. The fourth, mis, the fourth grievous miscalculation that Paul addresses here is in verse 12. He says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Why? Simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. It would be hard to imagine a more foolish way for us to spend our lives than to spend them trying to avoid being persecuted. Trying to avoid suffering hardship for the cross of Christ. You know what that kind of lifestyle is? It's a denial of the cross of Christ. Was the cross a party for Jesus Christ? A life spent clinging to comfort and avoiding pain is a life that denies our calling. The health and wealth gospel, beloved, is heresy. It is a denial of the believer's reason for still being here. The Judaizers of Paul's day pretended to be interested in things that mattered to God, but their real interest, what they really considered valuable, was the approval of men and personal comfort. Specifically, the avoidance of persecution. The very things that some are still pawning off today as the abundant Christian life. Make no mistake, God guarantees overflowing abundance of every good thing and every perfect gift for those whom He calls to His Son. All of us that He calls to His Son. But both the nature of that abundance and the means to laying hold of that abundance are exactly the opposite of what the Judaizers of Paul's day and the prosperity preachers of our day are pitching. God calls us to a life that denies self to follow Christ. A life that embraces, listen, a life that embraces the privilege of participating in the sufferings of Christ now in order that we may participate in the fullness of His glory later. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. Paul's testimony about himself in Philippians 3 say that same thing. Again, the cross clarifies what's valuable and what's not. Before Jesus could reclaim the glory that belonged to Him from eternity past, He had to endure much persecution and suffering during His time on this earth. Being obedient to His Father's will all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the servants are not greater than the Master. God promises that we will lay hold of the full measure of our glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ later, not now. And it is the eager anticipation of the fullness of that glorious inheritance that is the anchor of our souls. Any other hope? Any notion that our hope is in the things we can get our hands on now is a bald-faced lie. Don't buy it. 
Here is God's right-side-up proposition about what's valuable. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In verse 14, Paul moves from the negative to the positive. He's finished exposing our miscalculations about what's really valuable. Now he's going to come right out and tell us what really is valuable, what's really boastworthy. And it's just one thing. He says, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There... And there alone is our boast. Paul says he boasts in both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he treats those two as inseparable. The title, Our Lord Jesus Christ, is as loaded a title as you will ever hear. It speaks of Jesus as the Christ, the promised Messiah and Savior sent from God to bring us back to our God so that we may dwell in His presence forever. As Messiah, Jesus is the promised Son of David and Son of God, of whom all of the prophets spoke. In that same title, the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the man, Jesus, the carpenter's Son, who experienced all that is common to mankind, who knows firsthand our temptations and infirmities, yet who never sinned. And that title speaks of Jesus as our Lord, our Master, the one worthy of all our trust and all of our submission. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the one person in whom we boast. And the cross is His astounding work in which we boast. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is an event of such consequence to man and to all of God's creation that we should be awestruck even to ponder it. The magnitude of Christ's victory at the cross is beyond our comprehension. We talked about it this morning at the worship. But what we do know of it absolutely defines us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. That's the person and the work. The Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. It is Christ and His cross in which we boast. If you understand what that one verse really means, Galatians 2.20, and you let it define that which you call life, then you will understand what God calls life. 
The life we live now is Christ is the Christ-centered, cross-centered life. It is the life that replaces self with Christ, that sees the approval of men as valueless and the pleasure of God as riches beyond measure. It is the Christ-centered life. And it replaces all pursuit of worldly and fleshly gain, all pursuit of comfort and ease with intentional, joyful participation in the death of Christ day by day, moment by moment. Because that is the path to participation in the glory of Christ. It embraces the crucifixion of self for the sake of the crucified, resurrected Christ. It is the Christ-centered, cross-centered life. The life that is lived entirely by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me and for you. Dear Father, make us to know that life as the only real life. As the only life worth having. May it never be that we should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in His beautiful name and for His sake that we ask this. Amen.